At uh, 29 years of age, with only one son of four years old, I'm probably not the most qualified to speak of preparing boys for marriage, at least on the horizontal perspective. It would be laughable that I'm even up here. But um, masculinity and manhood is one of my favorite topics. The Lord has given uh, grace over the years. I've been able to be involved in ministry at some shape or form since I was 14, so 15 years And then uh, being the oldest of five brothers, one sister, certainly in no way prepared me for this talk, but it did expose me to a lot of masculinity. My parents are and were an unbelievable gift from the Lord and um, instilling in me some things that I will talk about here. And obviously, Scripture is the uh, authority on all subject. The smallest child could be up here and read Scripture and be able to give some thought as to uh, the truth being spoken. I'm also certainly lean upon uh, wise men, Scott Brown, um, Vody Bauckham, What He Must Be to, If He Wants to Marry My Daughter, a pretty good book. Probably the best book. Guys, I would, I'd recommend this. And if you ever come do one-on-one discipleship with me, I almost guarantee you're going to go through this book. Probably one of the best books I've read on manhood, The Masculine Mandate by Richard D. Phillips. God's Calling to Men, The Masculine Mandate, God's Calling to Men, Richard D. Phillips. Just outstanding book of walking through um, the scriptural principles listed on manhood. Um, and now I want to give just a little apologetic disclaimer before I begin. This is going to be like drinking from a fire hydrant. Uh, Shep Park popped into the office last night at about 11.30 said, how's it going? Said, it's going pretty good. I'm at 29 points. Somehow I've got to narrow that down. So it's not 29 points anymore, but it's, it's a lot of information. How do you, how do you pack all these things in? Trying, I tried to put it in a very systematic way that help you remember. And certainly this will be recorded if you want to scroll back through. Let me say that, let me start, begin by saying the quote oftentimes about manhood today is boys will be boys. And I'm sure we've all heard that. Well, have you ever noticed that that statement is not given to guys like Chandler's age, four years old? It's to grown men that are married. Boys will be boys. Just let them do what they want to do. Well, that's the culture that we have in America. And what that tells me is we're not preparing, we're not having men that are getting married. We're having boys that are getting married, boys that are in their 20s and 30s. Men aren't getting married much anymore. We are applauding boyhood for as long as we can possibly let it roll. The culture of American manhood, quote-unquote, is one of fantasy, certainly not reality. Fantasy marked by movies, TV, video games, pornography, gluttonous feasting, etc. A do-whatever-feels-good, entertainment-driven society. It's not working, and that much is very clear. That the boys will be boys culture of America and raising boys to be men and marry is certainly not one that is turning out much at all these days. So, in order to raise up boys prepared for marriage, biblical lasting marriages, this will require a radical way of thinking. In fact, anything you do to prepare your sons or help encourage your brothers or look to men that would be biblical, biblically qualified for marriage, it's going to look pretty radical. And in some ways, that helps. Because you can know, well, if it looks normal, probably in the culture of America, nowhere near good. Whereas biblical things have very much become the radical way of thinking. It's going to require a breaking from the culture. The biblical vision should be to train and expect our sons to be men. And this will take vision. 
where there is no vision, the people perish. And we've come to a day where if you're going to train your sons to be prepared for marriage, you're going to have to be pretty far thinking in is what I'm doing now, what's that going to look like 10 or 15 years down the road? Because it's not going to get the results that uh, it's not going to be, there's just not modeled anymore. You're not going to be able to see, well, this person over here, they did the same things and this is what they're doing. This is how it's looking. That's not the case anymore. I think one of the things that I am most blessed with is to have that couple right there sitting on the back row, Mark and Sharon Welch, where I can raise my children amidst other children that have the same mindset and are seeking to instill the same principles in their children. That's very rare anymore to be able to find someone and go, hey, what they're doing is the same thing I want to do. It's a very lonely walk and it's going to take some vision. Quickly, Proverbs 1.8. I'm going to throw, flow through a couple scripture passages here and then... Uh, get to some practical things. Proverbs 1.8. Go with me if you can. The Bible on the pew rack in front of you is the same translation that I'm using. English Standard Version. Proverbs 1 verse 8. I'm going to flip through three sections of scripture here. Two in Proverbs and two in Second Timothy. Proverbs 1 verse 8. Hear my son your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. Proverbs 6, verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. Now, 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy 1, verse 5. I am reminded, Paul to Timothy here, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Timothy did not have a father that was on board in the raising and preparing him for manhood. We know this according to Acts. He was a Gentile. So the, the burden of responsibility, at least for the raising and the understanding of the faith of Christ fell to grandmother Lois and mother Eunice. And Paul exhorts Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through, in, wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The responsibility is not the culture it's not the media, it's not the friends, it's not the sport, uh, sports. The responsibility lies with us as parents to raise and give a vision of godly manhood to our boys. It's not going to be something they're going to get anywhere else. So if it's not being given by you, it certainly won't be gotten anywhere else. Scott Brown was here uh, in November. He gave four controlling principles for fatherhood. And I'm adapting those. I didn't change them, but I'm going to call them four controlling principles for parents. Number one, this would be admonishing you and encouraging. Number one, what you do is what you really teach slash train. It's more caught than taught. So you've got to model biblical manhood 
And ladies, we'll get into things that you can model that will point your sons to biblical manhood. Number two, who you are is what you actually produce. God is still sovereign, but it matters what we do. There is man's responsibility versus God's sovereignty. So what you do is what you, is what you really train and teach. And who you are is what you actually produce. Number three, where you go is where you really direct. The steps of your feet are more powerful than how you spout theology. We can talk all you want, but all we want. But unless we're walking and doing what we're actually saying, it's not going to count for much. Number four, where and how you spend your time is what you promote. The way you spend your time, if it's with mom and with the family dads, then that's what they get as the priorities. If it's with the sports, if it's with the work, wherever it is, that's what they get as priority in life. Now, the admonition there to the parents, to us as parents, to walk in a scriptural way, knowing that we're going to be the ones, according to Proverbs and Second Timothy, that are going to teach and train our sons. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give the next two things I'm going to go through, two sections, which is the remaining of my entire talk here, is two sections. One is the four M's, M-I, apostrophe S, M's of training boys toward marriage. These are overarching principles that I want to give. And then there is, what does biblical manhood look like? And this would be the four P's. So you have the four M's and you have the four P's. Let's start with the four M's of training boys toward marriage. And these are overarching principles that I think um, they're certainly seen very clearly in Scripture. But it is um, it's not as clear cut as one verse may be. Here's some overarching principles. The first M, give him the biblical motivation. Motivation. Give him the biblical motivation for marriage. Real marriage, not the Hollywood version. The Hollywood version is a fake vision and motivation for marriage. It's all about me and pleasure and fast. And if it doesn't work, ditch it and go to the next thing. That's not the motivation for real marriage. If you want your sons to have a lasting marriage, give them the biblical motivation for marriage, a real marriage. And that would be, as I mentioned in the first talk this morning, mutual companionship, propagation of a godly seed, protection against impurity, Conformity to the image of Christ and a living example of Christ's love for us. And he can model most of those things in some way, shape, or form at a very young age. He may not propagate a godly seed, but he can propagate a godly spiritual seed. He can be investing in the lives of others. You can get him involved with ministry. He can be doing discipleship. There is a numerous, numerous ways he can apply these things to the spiritual perspective that will transfer to the physical. Number one, give him biblical motivation for marriage. Number two, uh, model. One is motivation. Two is model. Model a godly marriage. And if you can't, then put him, places, put him in places to see those. I don't know what your particular marriage is at home. Few people in here may ever know. Few people that you know probably know really what goes on. When all the lights are turned out or when you're in your own room, nobody knows what, what words, what tone. Nobody knows really what's happening. So if you're having trouble modeling a godly marriage, you can own up to that and take him to church. Put him in, put him in opportunities to see godly marriages. Mothers, model submission to your husband as to the Lord so that you can give your son the example of submission to God as his bride, uh, as, the, as the bride of Christ. You can train your sons to be manly 
just by learning how, showing him how you submit to your husband as unto the Lord. Fathers, model Christ-like love and care for your family and submission to Christ. As we talked about this morning, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, this is a practical picture of our relationship with Christ. Fathers, model uh, the, the God-like example and mothers model the church and, and uh, submission type example. And all in a marriage submit to Christ. So even fathers can model submission. One is motivation. Two is model. Three is masculine greatness. I encourage you and exhort you to expose your sons to masculine greatness. Uh, look at Timothy was exposed to Paul. Hannah exposed Samuel. I wouldn't call Eli masculine greatness. But she put him in areas to be able to see uh, men who are at least trying to uh, honor the Lord. You see the opposite in 1 Kings 12 of Rehoboam, who had just a bunch of friends around him who just said, Hey, man, you think it's tough now upon these people? Well, let me show you what we can really do. And it's all about you, and we're going to exercise control and power, and who cares about what people think? I, I, when I say masculine greatness, I mean strong, biblical Masculinity, initiative taking, courage, and strength. That does not mean athleticism. That does not mean brawn. There are, everybody's different. You could have a son who has artistic capabilities. He has no desire to lift a weight, run a race, hit a guy with a football helmet. That's okay. I have no problem with that. God creates everyone different. But you can still expose him to masculine greatness. You can still teach him to have a courage, take initiative, lead well. And he may be, I, I remember growing up, when you're the oldest of six brothers, you see all types of personalities. My brother Kyle, who is, if you know Kyle, Kyle's six foot one, 190 pounds, he's a strong guy, works out. Okay, Kyle at 20 months, 22 months old, he wouldn't crawl under a table for fear of hitting his head. I mean, the guy was just really timid. I mean, now he'll run into anything. But it was just a different personality. My son Chandler at 10 months wanted to run into everything possible. There's just a difference in personalities. And that's okay. You can still expose him to masculine greatness. Now these, this exposure, exposure could be um, uh, men that are alive or men that are uh, historical, scriptural, fictional, men that are in the media, men that are... Um, your friends, if you know great men, take your sons to meet those men. Let them become involved in their lives. Men like uh, men that have passed, I'd encourage you, read about R.G. Letourneau. If you've never read him, go look at Mover of Men and Mountains. George Mueller, Eric Little, one of my heroes of the faith. Jonathan Edwards. What, what Jonathan Edwards, if you want to give him a vision for uh, taking America by storm, probably the greatest man to ever be born on American soil. William Borden, few people realize, know about him, 24 years old, we've spoken of him before, uh, turned the world upside down in 24 years. William Tyndale uh, took, the, took the Bible out of uh, Latin into the German language, uh, did things that were, were hard biblical things. William Tyndale wasn't a extremely masculine, uh, he was extremely masculine man, he wasn't extremely brawny, sort of a weak man. Calvin was an exceptionally physically weak man. He was small. He, he, he was frail. He was very sickly, incredibly masculine. Hudson Taylor, Jim Elliott. My, Hudson Taylor's a great man to expose your sons to. Certainly some men there in history. 
Number one was motivation and the four M's of training boys toward marriage overrocking principles. One was motivation. Two was model. Three was masculine greatness. Four, mandate, mandate to your sons at an early age that you expect them in an age-appropriate manner to conduct themselves as biblical men. Expect your sons to act like men. I think one of the, uh, in, in just the, the short years that I've been able to be in, in counseling type ministry, this is the thing I run into the most about weak men, is they've never been called to act like biblical men. Not perfectly, not saying that. But you should expect them to act, to conduct themselves as biblical men. Second Timothy, or First Corinthians sixteen thirteen, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And if they're not conducting themselves appropriately, communicate them to them that you will let them know that they're not what they should be doing, and that you're expecting them to follow through on that. And then praise them for the character, not the things they do. Praise them for the character, Christ-like character they exhibited. Fathers, especially us, it's a lot easier for mamas to praise our sons. It's much more difficult for us fathers. We've got to praise our sons for the character and call out to them. Son, that, that was a manly thing to do. That was very well done. You protected your mother. You led well there. It was very attentive of you to see that danger. You worked hard. And it doesn't have to be an emotional thing. It can just be a, a grip on the shoulder. It can be something simple. But letting him know you approve of the way he's carrying out himself. When they model biblical manhood. What is biblical manhood? What does this look like? That was the four M's of training boys toward marriage. Overarching principles. In the remaining time, there's four, the four P's. This is pretty much in scripture summarizes biblical manhood. And I'll go through them individually, but let me just state. They're the protector, protector, provider, prophet, and priest. You're looking to be a protector, a prophet, a prophet. Protector, a provider, a prophet, and a priest. And you see these things clearly in Scripture. This is Christ. Christ is our prophet, priest, and king. And you could certainly break up priest into prophet. I'm sorry. You could certainly break up um, prophet, priest, and king. You could certainly bring, break up king into provider and protector. But you have these things very clearly given in Scripture. Um, Bodhi Bakum uses this, the four Ps, but... Almost any book on masculinity worth its salt is going to use these four um, key topics, four characteristics of a godly man. Beginning number one, protector. And I, I want to take the time to quickly go to the scripture verses so that you can see these are biblical. I can talk to them blue in the face, but unless we use scripture, we're getting away from our foundation. So three quick scriptures here on protector. Nehemiah 4, 13 through 14 this is uh, Nehemiah. He's gathered the men. They've got some opposition to their work. And this is what he how exhorts them. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, Nehemiah 4, 13 and 14, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, their bows. So we put them together as families. We've outfitted them in order to protect themselves. 14 is the key. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And notice they don't say your husbands. So husbands, men, are called to be protectors of these things. You're called to be a protector of your brother next to you. That's why uh, 
Cain and Abel, you can't get away with this. Am I my brother's keeper? You can't get away with that. Can't get away with that in the, in the family of God and with the local context of the family. We are to fight for our brothers, our sons, daughters, wives, homes. First Peter three seven. First Peter three verse seven. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the wife as the weaker vessel, since they are the heirs with you of the grace of life, so that prayers may not be hindered. And obviously, protection is more than just physical protection, which we'll go through in a minute here. And then the last one would be Proverbs 5 through 7. And there's more about moral protection. We won't go through all three of those chapters, but certainly very clear in there about moral protection. Now, practicality here. Age-appropriate. You can teach your sons age-appropriately to be protectors. For instance, obviously you're teaching him to look to the interest of others. So age-appropriate, it could just be killing a bug. Hey, that bug came in the house. That bug came, that scorpion, you know, you smush that thing. You can just, you can, you can teach them age-appropriate to protect their sisters and their mother. Um, I remember one of the, one of the earliest memories I have is my dad locked the door every night. And I learned when dad leaves, he never had to teach me, when dad leaves, I lock the door every night because I'm going to do what dad's going to do. And so you can model by example, but you can have him, son, when I leave, and if I'm gone for a few days, I want you to make sure you're the last one in and I want you to lock the doors at night. It's very simple. There's nothing difficult. You can foresee danger. You can teach your son to foresee danger to protect. Um, one of the fondest stories I have of Chandler, and I don't remember, I was trying to remember this morning, this was Annalise or Caroline, I think it was Annalise. Chandler's 15 months older than her. He was sitting on the porch. He was probably uh, just about three. She was one and a half or so. And um, it might have been Caroline. Anyway, either one of the girls, they had just learned to walk. So they're in the really, you know, staggering stage. And we have a porch and you drop off the, you walk, if you step off the porch, you just, you just drop off about a foot and a half or a foot and there, we have a rock there. And so just the right height and you can kind of see it. Take one step and the head's going to hit the rock. Well, I was in, I was about 50 feet away in the Welch's home and I look out the window and you know, you can just see it all happening slow motion. Here's one of the girls. They are inching up to the edge here, getting ready to take that one final step over and they're just going to plunge off the edge. And Chandler's sitting right here and he's just drinking his cup. No big deal. Just not clueless, but just enjoying his cup and sisters right there. So Lucy was in the house. She didn't, couldn't see what was going on. So I'm, I'm seeing all this, you know, this is like three seconds period of time. You're running for the door. No, grab the door, rip it open. I yell, Chandler Graver, you know, running across the yard. No, no, no. He (laughs) just reached up, grabbed her by the back of the dress and yanked her into a seat. Just kind of like, yeah, it's just what we do. Rescue our sister. It's just, it was this calm. You, you, sometimes you don't, you don't have to even, I, I've discovered, you don't have to oftentimes teach your son how to do that. You just have to foster. It comes natural to them. Um, we had a coral snake that we encountered, or the children and Lucy encountered up at the um, playground. And uh, when it happened, he went into defense mode, cleared everybody back, just started moving his sister out of the way. Those things happen. You can teach them, hey, son, and this is, we showed him what bad snakes look like. If that happens, you get everybody out of the way and then you run again. You can teach them age appropriately how to protect. Uh, aware, be, teach them, you know, this is one that I really, 
became very aware of when I was about 14 is be aware of your uh, surroundings. When I grew up, we were big readers of history. And what always stuck with me, and I don't know why, was Wild Bill Hickok and how he got killed. He was a famous lawman, and he had a principle, which was never sit with his back to the door. And so he got killed that way. The one time he sat with his back to the door, a man come up and came up and shot him in the back of his head. He was a famous lawman, so nobody really liked him. And very quick on the draw. And he went into this saloon, and he was going to play this poker game. And there was only one seat left, and they said, no, you've got to take it. Nobody would move for him, so he sat with his back to the door that one time, and that's the time he was shot. And it always stuck with me from then on out. Sit with your, sit with your face to the door. I want to see what's coming. And you can train your boys. Sit where you can see what's coming so that you can take it on. And you can, you, you can address the situation. You can say, Mom, you know, this is, I don't like this. Even now, uh, obviously now, obviously age appropriate for me with my wife, I like to sit with my, back to the, with my back to the wall where I can see what's coming through. And I can say, honey, there's a man who's come through the door. I don't like the way he looks. And so we're just, if you need to go to the restroom anytime soon, we're not going to do that right now because I don't like this way this guy's looking. Things become age appropriate, but you can teach them to be very aware of surroundings and um, watching out for these type of things. Uh, practical things. Walk them to the nearest, uh, walking next to them nearest the danger. Uh, teach your sons to walk on the left side of ladies. Because if you're on sidewalks, the left side's always the side near, if you walk in the correct way on the sidewalk, almost always the left side is the side nearest the traffic. So teach them to put themselves in the harm way and protect them from what's going on. If you're walking down the right side of the road, your left side, you're coming nearest the traffic. If you walk in the other direction, left side's nearest the traffic. Encourage them to be able to put themselves closer to danger than those around them. Uh, teach them God's design for sexuality. If you weren't able to be in Paul's sp- uh, talk this morning, I encourage you to listen to it. It was excellent. But you can teach him to protect his own heart and the hearts and lives of young ladies around them by giving them a biblical understanding of God's design for sexuality. Because this allows him to learn to protect and treat ladies as sisters in the Lord, not as objects of pleasure. And you've also got to give him a biblical, if we're talking about relationships here, you can give him a biblical understanding of relationships that will allow him to protect his own heart from the lives of young men. Teach him to have Jonathan type relationships, Jonathan and David type relationships, not relationships that are tearing him down. And if you look in Scripture, let me just make one more comment on this. If you look in Scripture, friendship is elevated to a very high level. He who has a friend must show himself friendly. What this means is, you have lots of friends, the, your entire moral value system has to be watered down because you have to show yourself friendly to a whole lot more people. Teach your son to have lots and lots of acquaintances, which is good to develop a ministry. But have only a few men in his life that are close friends where he's able to open up his soul and really know that he's going to be stirred and driven toward the Lord rather than have his whole moral system watered down. One more on protector. Teach him to love the truth and he will protect the truth. Discuss often... The lies of the culture. Make your home a truth center. Meals, car rides, walks, family devotions, working together. Use these times to teach him how to discern truth. Use opportunities to teach him the truth. And then sometimes the best way to do that is to point out the lie of the culture and say, now that's what they say. Let me show you what scripture says. Number one, the first P was protector. Second P is provider. Second P is provider. Let me check my time here. 
Second P is provider. First Timothy five eight. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And then the qualification given for men in the church, Titus 2, 5, Titus 2, verse 5, to be self-controlled, pure, I'm sorry, uh, this is a admonition given to wives working at home. There's certainly some uh, crossover there that men, ladies are working at home, Men can work at home, obviously, but men need to be working. They need to provide for their own household. Teach him. If 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 the first one I, I oftentimes run into um, in weak ma- masculinity is not mandating to your sons, not expecting them to, to act like men. The second one I think I run into most often now is men do not know how to work hard. And you've got to teach your sons to work to the point of exhaustion and mothers, that's really hard for y'all. But you've got to, I mean, let the man take himself to the very end and push him to just sweats pouring out. He's got to know. If he doesn't know how far he can go, he'll never take himself that far there. And those things apply spiritually. Because if he's never taken himself to the point of literally shedding blood and, and, and sweat to the point of exhaustion, he'll never take himself that far spiritually in the fight for moral purity. Never do it. And somehow he thinks that a half-hearted work effort like he can get away with at home is going to make it in the moral purity and spiritual realm. It's a lie. It won't work. Bruce Waltke in his commentary on Genesis says, Work is a gift of God, not a punishment for sin. Even before the fall, humanity had duties to perform. Richard Phillips in The Masculine Mandate, After Adam's fall, it remained good for man to work. But due to God's curse on the earth because of a human sin... It became necessary for man not merely to work, but to work hard. So work is a gift from the Lord. It's the work hard part that's necessary and part of the curse. This is obviously opposite our culture of entertainment and working only as hard as necessary to get away with a paycheck until Friday afternoon. Don't be afraid to make them suffer. This has spiritual implications. My mother, when I was six and four, and she'll still tell tell the story, and I don't, I have a really horrible long-term memory. But this is one that really stuck with me. As I was probably six, might have been seven, Cabe was five or four. She took us to the church at that time, which was a army barracks that they had transferred into a church. So it was on a rough piece of property. And she had us move rocks. And I don't know how long it was. All I know is we tried to give up a lot. And, she, and these weren't like, you know... Little rocks. I mean, they were volleyball-sized rocks. And when you're seven and five, I mean, that's a pretty good little chunk. She had us move rocks just to help clear this land. And I don't know how long we did it, but we tried repeatedly to stop. And she said, no, keep moving rocks. Keep moving rocks. Keep moving rocks. You know, it sticks with you. You go, hey, I can, I can do this. I want to stop, and mom wants me to stop. But mom's, dad's, boys, man, we like to stop way before we're anywhere near close to what we can actually do. Teach them to work hard. Hebrews 12, 3 and 4 talks about how we've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Teach us, teach the young men how to uh, work really hard and that will have spiritual implications. All things are done for the glory of God, Colossians 3, and not as unto men. Teach them to work as unto the Lord. So that should be that you require your son 
to do things with ex- to do things with excellence without the need for supervision, appealing to his relationship with God. If you're to do all things for the glory of God, no man's watching you. Work hard, because God's watching you, and do it with excellence as unto Him. And I and this is practical. There's there's many ways to do this. You, it doesn't have to be a job. You can teach your son to work hard at school. You can teach your son to work hard at his athletics, if he's in athletics, or his chores. Whatever he does, you need to teach him to be all there, doing it the best of his ability with everything he's got. So it can certainly be a four-year-old or a six-year-old or a 20-year-old or whatever age appropriate is. Whatever he's doing, teach him to work hard at it and do it with excellence. Along with provider, if teaching him to work is number one under provider, number two under provider would be teaching him the value of hard-earned money. Don't teach them get-rich-quick schemes. And, and I'm not going to tell you don't do an allowance for your son, but I'm telling you I had huge benefits of not having an allowance. Now, my dad gave us jobs, and we could go do the jobs and earn a little bit more money. But when you just kind of give it to them for very little, I'm going to encourage you, don't do that, because it gives them the understanding that I don't have to do much. I can rely upon mom and dad's welfare system, and I can get by. And it just really doesn't work that well. Make them work for it. Think of this story. What's better? Walking down the road, some person uh, walks up to you just out of the kindness of their heart and said, five bucks, here you go, man. It's all yours. Great. Walking down the road, five bucks in your pocket, you think, man, that's an awfully nice person. As you're walking down the road, this six foot eight, 310 pound guy taps you on the back of his shoulder, spin around, look at him in the eyes, and he says, give me all your money. (laughs) five bucks here you go it's all yours no problem and you take a walk well flip the situation around you go in uh, on uh, May 1st and tell the man at the local uh, road care district there in your town county district to uh, protect the roads hey I want a summer job sure here you go 110 degree heat on the asphalt jackhammering all summer long great well, you finish three months, and at the end of three months, the man hands you ten thousand dollars. Slip that baby in your pocket. You're walking down the road. That same six foot eight, three town, three ten guy taps you in the shoulder, says, "Give you all your money." You know what I'm doing? I'm hitting him with everything I have, and I'm running as fast as I can go. I worked hard for that money, and I want it. I'm going to keep it, and I'm going to do everything I can to protect it, and I'm not going to spend it frivolously because I had to blood, sweat, and tears to put that thing. I got the calluses to show it. Don't give your son the value of hard-earned money. Budget, giving, saving, short and long-term, making wise purchases. Talk them through. How do you make a wise purchase? Business, provider. This is another thing, maybe number three, that I'm seeing in the homeschool community. It is excellent to give your son entrepreneurial skills. But give him wise entrepreneurial skills that allows him to evaluate his income potential based upon what he perceives as God's vision for his life. If you have a son who wants to travel the world, go on missions trips, give away money, and you allow him in entrepreneurial skills to be in a job that maxes out at $40,000, ain't going to happen. And said, say, son... This is an excellent job you have. The max potential here, maybe if you work really hard for the next 15 years, you're going to make $40,000 out of this thing. I've got no problem with that. You can live on $40,000. Not going to be easy, but you can do it. 
Now, I just want you to know, if you make $40,000, this is more of what your lifestyle is going to look like. Now, if you don't like that lifestyle and you come over here, that's no problem either. We can go find ourselves a job that make, that matches this lifestyle. But help them to understand that when you make business decisions, these things have practical implications. And you could love your work to death and be eating ramen noodles all the time. Nobody wants that. So teach him that when you make realistic, realistic business decisions that you've got to make them with the understanding that income potential is going to directly relate to the lifestyle that you can have with your potential bride one day. Teach them practical skills and is working as a provider. Probably one of the most practical skills my dad taught me was typing. He made me do Mavis Beacon teaches typing version 8 for the longest time. And you know what? I laugh at that. But I, I haven't met too many people who can crank out a good, fast typing that is, and it, it, it has served me so well now in the ministry. Sometimes when computers come down and you can't transfer files and you have to retype things, if I was typing at 40 words per minute, it would take me all day, but you can crank things out. Word, Excel, typing, uh, learn, teach them how to learn tools. If you don't know how to do that, no problem. Find a man who does, let him go apprentice with him for a while. That would be my last point here under provider, is put them in a disciplined environment. Put them in a disciplined environment. I'm not going to read all these. Um, one of the things I have found most beneficial in my life is when I'm going through scripture and I catch a, um, a characteristic, a theme that is modeled throughout scripture. I have at the beginning and the end of my Bible, I've, I've begun making my own concordance. And I can go to that and go, hey, here's one thing on a particular topic. And I've got one at the very top of my Bible. It says discipline in the Bible. And as I go through reading the Bible, I just make note. When I find a verse that talks about discipline, I go mark it there. And there are a lot of verses on discipline. A lot of them. Proverbs fifty seventeen, Proverbs 5, 12 and 23. Look at Proverbs 5, 12 and 23. He who hates discipline will die. So don't teach your son to hate discipline. Teach him to love it. Put him in disciplined environments. Proverbs 12, 1. 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. Discipline yourself as a good soldier. An athlete, a farmer. Those guys, those are disciplined men or they don't make it in life. 2 Timothy 2, 4 through 6. Proverbs, uh, Psalm 50, 17. Proverbs 5, 12, 23. Proverbs 12, 1. 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. 2 Timothy 2, 4 through 6. And that's just a smattering of the amount of verses that there are in Scripture about discipline. Put your son in a disciplined environment. Three and four of the P's. Protector was number one. Provider was number two. Prophet and priest. I'm going to lump underneath one. Let me make some distinction. A prophet would be Ephesians 6.4. And this would be determining you're leading, leading spiritually and instructing in God's ways. And so you can put leading underneath this. As in just leading your family. Priest is distinctive in that it's talking about intercession and a prayer life. More of a personal walk with the Lord as pertaining to how your personal walk with the Lord affects those that are around you. So we've got a prophet which determines how you lead. And a priest which determines really your personal life. That determines the uh, quality of your prophet abilities. Ephesians 6, 4, leading spiritually, instructing in God's way would be prophet. And Joshua 24, 15 would be about uh, one of the verses about the priest interceding.
So let me, let me uh, give some, some thoughts here in our remaining few minutes. Um, I think the first thing I would encourage you in this is teach your sons to think theologically about everything. Teach your sons to think theologically about everything. You must teach your sons that Scripture is sufficient for all things by modeling that. When you are asked questions, take them into Scripture and discover the answer together. If you do not model Scripture as sufficient, then they will eventually go astray because the person they trust the most doesn't believe that what they believe is truth no matter the circumstance. You've got to, they've got to know that dad, dad is just bulldogish about the fact that everything in life is spoken of in Scripture somewhere. And he just refuses to believe that the culture is going to have one iota of truth involved in it. He's got to know that. And underneath this theological heading would be things like giving them an understanding of the sovereignty of God. Giving them the understanding of the entire counsel and character of God. That they have no need to fear. Give them a telescope view of God versus a microscope view. A microscope makes small things big. A telescope makes enormous in uh, undescribable, uh, unbelievably huge things, you can take portions of it and zoom it down so you can catch a small glimpse of what this is. Go look at the stars at night and you catch only a small thing and you're, whoa, so much bigger than you can actually comprehend. Give them a telescope view, not a microscope view. Model biblical conflict resolution and forgiveness, Matthew 18. Few families model Matthew 18. Read Matthew 18, because what it does is not say is, that person offended me, I'm going to sit here and wait till they come to me. They may have no clue, and you're developing bitterness and unforgiveness and all of these things. Show them that when your brother offends you, you actually go to them, and you can develop these things and learn how to communicate. Model, model biblical conflict resolution and forgiveness. Teach them there are consequences to sin. Expect obedience. Uh, you expecting your children to obey your parents as in the Lord gives them a regard for God-given authority. These are all under the theological heading. Teach them to live as the bride of Christ, preparing for the ultimate wedding day. We talked about that this morning. Require him to honor his mother and father. He won't have an, He won't desire to honor his Heavenly Father, if he's not required to honor his earthly father. Teach him biblical manhood and womanhood. Teach him that he is made for community. Us guys, we we have a tendency toward a lone wolf mentality. And you've got to teach him that, no, you're made for community. You're made to be in a church. You're made to be in a family. You're made to have... It is not good that man should be alone. That's in Genesis, very beginning. Adam's all by himself, and God goes, oh, this is not good. We've got to get somebody in here to give him some community. You're made for community. Assist him in finding a Titus II culture of mentorship and discipleship. Let him, uh, help him to discover men that he can walk alongside and be discipled and mentored by. And, and those men who will be able to push him in ways that you can't. You cannot train and raise sons by yourself. You're, you need community as well. Teach him the cost of grace. This is huge. Teach him the cost of grace. There is no cheap grace. And listen to what Bonhoeffer says in The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go gl- gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake of one will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. 
It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it causes us to follow Jesus Christ. And I would also add it's grace because it gives, enables us to follow, to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man, the Son of God, his very life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs the life of God, costs God the life of his son. You were bought with a price and what has cost God cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son to dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Grace is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. It is grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden light. Teach him that grace is not cheap and it requires something of you. It's not required. You are not required to do anything. You cannot do anything for salvation. But once you have obtained eternal life, it is, it is, your life is not your own. It comes with a price. Teach This is still all under uh, theological stuff. Teach him to be a disciple maker. Teach him to memorize scripture and use that scripture to fight for faith. Romans 6, Psalm 42 and 43. Teach him to talk back to himself. You can read about that in Martin Lloyd-Jones. 1 Corinthians 13, how to model Christ-like love to others. Teach your child how to put on and put off. Ephesians 4. A few young people today know how to change. How do you change habits and behaviors you don't like? Man, I can't... I want to keep my life more orderly. Why can't I do that? Well, there's biblical ways to change from a non-orderly person to an orderly person. Putting on, putting off. Teach them their identities in Christ. Ephesians 1. This is huge. Your identity is not in your friends. It's not in what you wear. It's not in the church you go to. It's not that you're homeschooled. That you go to public school. It's not in anything other than the fact that you are bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. Teach him to lead sacrificially by serving. Making Here's some practical things. If you want your son to lead sacrificially, give him opportunities to do that. Let him make decisions based on the good of others rather than himself. For instance, you're getting, you're getting in the car, the whole family's in the car, you're getting ready to go down the road to a restaurant, you say, son, where do you think we should go? I want to go to McDonald's. Want, son, did you think everybody in the car wants to go to McDonald's? I don't care, I want to go to McDonald's. No, no, I said, you've got to lead here. Why don't you talk to some other people in the car and figure out where they want to go and let's make a decision based on the good of everybody. You can teach him how to do that at a very young age. Insist on treating his mother and sisters with politeness and gentleness. That's leading sacrificially. Instead of saying things or doing things that he would want, he does it for the good of others. Insist on good manners. When I was growing up, uh, my best friend at the time was uh, a guy named, by the name of Paul Carlton, uh, Luke Carlton. And his dad was Paul Carlton, who became Surgeon General of the Air Force. In fact, he was in the Pentagon when the plane came into it. It has a marvelous story of God's grace. I grew up with him in his home from about the age of 9, 10, eight, well, maybe a little more than that, maybe 8 or 9, up until about my, deep into my teen years. I was in his home on and off, but especially between the ages of about 9 through 13. I was in his home probably at least two or three times a month. I was always over at his house. And he was a high-class general. I mean, this guy, he was way up there in the echelon of the Air Force. 
And he required of his sons and his daughters to be able to handle themselves in any circumstance. You could go to the finest state dinner and they would know how to handle themselves. And yet they could also handle themselves with just a simple potluck. And they could do it in the way that was for the good of others, not in just themselves. He insisted on good manners, politeness, gentleness, because he understood that these things are the requirements of masculine greatness when you get to the top of the food chain. Richard Phillips, the masculine mandated once again, a man's fingers should be accustomed to working in the soil of the human heart, the hearts of those he serves and loves, that he might accomplish some of the most valuable and important work of this life. So when you're teaching him to lead sacrificially by serving, you're teaching him to take his fingers and knead those hearts within his family to draw out the desires that are there so he can make good choices. Three more points and I'm done. Teach him to lead spiritually. You can do this. This is a huge thing that most guys, when they want to get married, they go, whoa, I've never led spiritually. How do you lead spiritually? Teach him to lead spiritually. Teach him to do this by reading, having him read scripture for the family when he's age appropriate. Ask him age appropriate questions as he gets older and allow him to think through and communicate those thoughts to the family. Son, what is the sovereignty of God? And let him answer. Son, what does it mean to do all to the glory of God? We're going through with our children right now the catechism. It's a very small, condensed version for very little children, very small children. But we can ask them age-appropriate questions on the catechism-type biblical teaching. Develop, and then lastly on the prophet and priest is develop a strong prayer life. Mothers, let your sons, require of your sons, call your sons to lead the family in prayer when dad's gone. Let him learn how to do this. He's not going to do it perfectly, of course. But he's got to have, he's got to have a, a, a means and a way of practicing these things or he's going to find himself approaching marriageable age and having never been required to actually do these things. Lastly, of course, that we must trust God's grace for this process. We're not going to do it perfectly. We need God to help us. Parents, we must walk with daily with him. We must see the big picture. We must celebrate the small steps that are forward. I think sometimes we have this big vision and then we're just, you know, we're inching toward it. We're getting a little discouraged. Celebrate those small steps. Celebrate when he, when he does the things he does right. You might take a few steps forward, a few steps back. Keep working the process. Do it God's way and you can expect God to get the results. Obviously, we're praying, 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 praying. Uh, praying that God would allow us to do these things. Uh, I just want to comment, sisters, that are in here, I only see a few, but sisters, you can, you can encourage and, and require of your brothers to do this. Um, sometimes that uh, comes in an even greater way. Sometimes us, us brothers kind of feel a little awkward that we're trying to be kind of grown up around our sisters and you know, they're going to kind of mock us or something. If you drop all that, you just encourage them and call them to that godly manliness. Um, sometimes that has a better impact and encouragement to them than really some things that parents will ever be able to say. So let us pray and, and ask God for grace. Thank you for your time and your uh, patience with me. I know this is a lot of information that we rocketed through pretty quickly here, but I trust uh, the Lord reveal one or two things you'd be able to apply. Let's pray.